Welcome to the Bad Girls on Business, the podcast that makes business more fun so you want to do more of it. Here are your hostesses with the mostesses, Jenny Bellinger, Virginia Muskies, and Michelle Nedelec. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to another rousing episode of the Bad Girls on Business. Uh, I'm Virginia Muskies, your host. I'm here with Michelle Nedelec. I am your mistress in business, helping you to get it up and keep it up. And of course, we're talking about revenue and profit. Amen. And Jenny Bellinger, our uh, direct sales dom, will be with us shortly. Um, she is uh, stuck in traffic right now, but she'll hop on as soon as she can. And she helps rockstar direct sales moms move from being make, making $200 a month to being in the top 1% of their company so they can show their kids what it means to be a woman and be successful while they're staying home and raising their kids. And today I'm very excited because we have two guests. One we've got in here as our co-host. Um, she is my friend and my my personal um, handbag couture designer, um, Lisa Yu with Let's Mix. She's all absolutely awesome, local designer to St. Louis. And so I wanted her to meet our very special guest today. Um, and so Lisa, welcome to the Bad Girls on Business um, and by the way, we are a safe, sane and consensual podcast. And David has, has said that he is like, he's nice and he's naughty, but he's in for full on kink. So there are no, there are no <laughs> limits on what we can talk about. Um, uh, David, we do have a safe word. The safe word is meatloaf because we would do anything but that. Okay. 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 So right. there you go. So guys, let's go ahead, ladies and meet our meet our guest today. This is David Tupaz. He is an artist and a fashion couture designer, the only established designer in Nevada. Representing Las Vegas in every major fashion week in the country, he is a regular on the red carpet dressing celebrities and movie stars during award season. He is the founder of the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council, a nonprofit that mentors local designers, creative youth, students, artists, and others. And he mentored in opening a manufacturing presence in the city of Las Vegas to jumpstart the creation of a local fashion industry, as well as attract other manufacturers from other states, particularly California, where 85% of American-made apparel is produced. He's the only designer representing Nevada in major national fashion events. And he was honored by the Seattle Art Institute in a retrospective exhibition of his designs. It goes on and on and on and on. But here's the deal. Upon like opening, up, yes, he's <laughs> that good, you guys. He is that good. <laughs> upon opening the first couture atelier in the city's history, Mayor Carolyn Goodwin, together with the City Council of the City of Las Vegas, honored David Tupaz with a proclamation of two special days named after him. June 3rd is David Tupaz Day, and December 13th is David Tupaz Couture Day. This is a man who not only is a brilliant designer, a great storyteller, this man is changing the world with his impact vision and you guys know how i love me some impact so david tupaz welcome to the bad girls on business and the crowd went wild thank you thank you for having me it felt like i got my academy awards i would like to thank my wardrobe 
I'd like to thank my makeup artist and <laughs> it's fabulous. Your, your, your intro, your intro is just like, oh my God, it's like my life flashed in front of me while you're well, talking. David, to be truthful, um, I, I got it off your website. So you wrote it. So it ought to be good. Number one. Number two. All y'all couldn't see him accepting his, his his Academy Award holding a can of Pledge furniture polish. So, <laughs> it wasn't a dildo, out, but it was pretty good. It wasn't a dildo, it was a can of Pledge. But, Bridget, you know. That's how you know someone's made it. They don't even need an actual award anymore at this point. You know, They're like, we made it, I made it. You know, Amen. anything so is an award, yeah. So welcome Jenny Bellinger. Jenny, we went ahead and introduced you, but we do want David Tupaz to, to say hello to you. And um, yeah. Hello. hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm wonderful. How are you? Thanks so much oh. for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be amidst the bad girls. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> you know it. We, we, we know no bounds. So David, I had the absolute privilege of meeting you in Las Vegas. Um, Michelle was asking offline about this and said, hit record. So uh, we have a mutual friend, Grandmaster Scott Conway. I understand you met Grandmaster Scott at a, over a trash can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a while ago. Isn't that funny? I mean, he attended most of the events uh, because here in Vegas, uh, since I founded the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council in 2011, of which we formalized it in 2012. But this particular, it's a nonprofit 501c3 organization. And what it does is that it helps a lot of the naturally creative young people in the city who doesn't come from money and who cannot afford to go to fashion school or to art school uh, in helping them in their creative growth. And we give them educational programs, training programs and workshops so that, you know, I mean, uh, they start having the knowledge that in the event, in their future, that they would like to make a career out of fashion, they already have at least the basics and the background for it. So we do it for free. We offer it to all these kids who are, you know, who are naturally creative, but it's so sad that there's no program, no support, no money, no nothing in order to help them in their creative growth. And you know, and I, it was very, it was very inspiring in a sense that I met a lot of these young people when I moved in Vegas. And now some of them are already in business. Some of them have already started their own business. One of them is a friend of mine who actually does uniforms for casinos now. And she's making big bucks out of it. Yeah. And so, you yeah. know, and I always believe that. That's why my slogan for the council is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't even matter what you have. What matters is how others have become because of you. Mm, that is awesome. so sweet. So that is Jenny, awesome. I was just gonna say I'm goosebumpy. I'm goosebumpy just from that. I love that. Oh, that 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 warms my heart. I love that. So in in all of that that you've been doing, um, have you found that that attracts more clients to work with you because of the impact that you're having? Yes, in, in, in a sense that it's so funny because uh, the, the whole idea of me coming to Las Vegas was, was brought by an unfortunate event. Uh, my, uh, I used to live in New York City and most of you are probably not even born yet. <laughs> 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 when I was there. And so, and then in 1990, I, I worked in New York at the garment 
I worked in the fashion industry in New York. And then after that, I was hired to work in Los Angeles. And so in 1997, I moved from New York City to LA and started working for the networks, doing and designing costumes for TV shows like Malcolm in the Middle, Boston Legal, Will and Grace, Sybil, and all that. And so that's how I started meeting a lot of these important people and people in the entertainment industry, which actually is one of my basic resource when I started the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council, because it, it, it's, you know, I mean, I grew up in a culture of it's what you can give. That's the kind of culture I grew up in. It, it's, it's not what you can get. It's what you can give that matters mostly. So, you know, I've, ever since I was a little boy, that has already been some sort of a culture. So, uh, so there I am. And, and, and I'm, I'm very happy that I was able to do something because, you know, the, I think the most important thing that all of us is that I, for me, I just want to matter. I just want to matter, you know, even if I wake up in the morning and do my own bed and all that stuff, you know, it's just, I, I think that's the most important thing is that we, we should do something in life that it doesn't have to be a glimp, a, an Olympic gold medal or anything like that. But, you know, a, a small little difference does make a big difference, you know, so, uh, David, it's Lisa here. Yeah, I have a question for you. I mean, you're just, your background is astonishing. It's so admirable. Like, what got you to where you are right now? Because it's not just like a flip of a switch and you want to help change the world or uh, contribute, right? There's something that's mm -hmm. like fundamentally that got you to where you are, where it makes you want to just give. What well, the was thing that? Is, is there any like a turning point? I have to give you the background of what, what every, everything happened because as I said, the reason I moved to Vegas was because of an unfortunate uh, event when I moved to California. Uh, after I started designing for uh, costumes for TV shows and all that, I started my own atelier because most of these celebrities and most of these important people, they don't shop. They don't go to Macy's or they don't go walk around Saks. Or, they don't do that. They don't shop. And so uh, well, a lot of their clothes are either done for them or shopped for them, bought for them, or, or custom made for them. And so that's how I started my own business. And so uh, 1997 through 2008, I was very, doing very well. You know, uh, That's where I started dressing some of the celebrities for the red carpet, you know, and you know, my first experience in, in all this whole uh, award season where it's so funny because, you know, working with a lot of important people, you know, you see all of them in their glory. And I would always joke that, you know what, the Academy Awards and the award season in America or in the United States is an event where the jewelries are real, but the cleavage is questionable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, I love the whole experience because a lot of people think that, you know, the whole uh, Hollywood attitude of big stars and celebrities, actually, they're the nicest people ever. Actually, some of them are some of the most down to earth and humble people that, that I've ever met. You know, it's, it's just that it so happens that you see them in the limelight and you see them everywhere and they're talked about and they're in the news and in the TV shows and et cetera, et cetera. 
But you know what? They're as regular as we are. They would always love to go to In-N-Out Burger or go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, it's not all about caviar and and champagne. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 amazing, and I, I like the whole idea. Today, I don't know about the stars in the 50s or in the 60s, but today everybody's like kind of like down to earth. David, talk a little bit. When I was when I was with you in Vegas, you sort of shared with me how you got your start. And I think it's really fascinating. And I, I, I mean, I know I'm interested, but I think Lisa has a journey of how you know the design, becoming a designer. So I would love for you to share that story. Um, sure, you know, sure. How you got started. Well, well, I graduated interior design. Uh, I majored in, in architecture and interior design in college. And when I graduated, this was, oh God, Lisa, and I guess no one was born yet. Um, you know, I uh, from how from Manila, where I was born, my mother is from Hawaii and my parents divorced and Lisa probably heard about that in one of my interviews and uh, moved back to Hawaii. And so I uh, would travel back and forth and we come from a Catholic background. So we're eight brothers and sisters do the math. And so wow. uh, <laughs> and so uh, visiting my mom. Uh, every year, you know, I would travel to Hawaii and travel everywhere. And then, you know, I realized that, you know, I think it's about time that I try my luck and, and pursue my studies further. And so when I graduated interior design, uh, after graduation, I moved to New York City thinking that, you know, that's the center of all design, whether it's fashion or, or interiors or what That's what many you. people believe, yeah. Yes, right? And so moving to New York, Unfortunately, when I moved to New York, it was the eve of Desert Storm. Our, see, nobody's reacting because probably you weren't even born we yet. Are, we're, we're all speechless going, oh my God, that would suck. Okay, probably the residential youngest person here, I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no. well, okay, Desert Storm was the first Gulf War that, you know, we went to war against uh, in, in, in Kuwait with uh, declared by President Bush, I mean, senior President Bush, not George W. And so at that time, it was the first time America went into war after Vietnam in so many years. And it was like a whole different generation and people didn't know how to react or respond to it, as well as all the businesses and other entities that, you know, the stock market, every, everything seemed to be in a standstill. They don't know what's going to happen, whether this war is going to bring a negative impact or or whatever. And so that was the time I moved to New York and hoping that I would be working in the design industry, the interior design industry, nobody was hiring because at that particular moment, as I said, the whole world was in a standstill. They don't know what to do. It, it's like they're waiting for whatever because it, 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 everybody was shocked that we, America even went into war. So anyway, uh, work at, living in New York City, I needed to freaking have a job, man. I mean, it's no kidding, you know. A, no fun a, living a, in New York without expensive. money. <laughs> exactly. You know, a liter of a liter of Coke, you know, a bottle of Coke is, is like $6.99 on sale on 9th Avenue in one of the groceries in Manhattan. I have to cross all the way to Queens to get those regular grocery prices. But Otherwise, you know, I was a friend of mine called me and says, get the classifieds, get it. I said, why? There's a job for you. You, you. you have to look into it. And so I looked at it and the ad said assistant to the pattern maker. 
And I told him, I don't know anything about patterns. I don't do anything. Just get the job, he says. Just apply for it. And I said, you know, I was so desperate that I'm willing to work for McDonald's or a pizza parlor because, you know, as you said, working in New York, you, I mean, living in New York, you have to have some sort of money. And so I did. And during that time, there's no such thing as emailing your resume. You really have to go there for the interview and present your resume. That's how it worked then during my time. And so I remember coming at eight o'clock in the morning in 7th Avenue and 5507 Avenue was the address. And there was a gentleman that came in and he says, are you David? I said, yes. Okay, come into my office. And, and then he, I sat down and I gave him my um, resume and he's looking at the resume, reading it at the same time, checking me out and looking at me, you know? And so finally the question arose and he said, I don't see any fashion experience in your resume. And I said, uh, yes, I graduated interior design, but I said, design is relative. You know, we use the same tape measure. We use the same inches. We use the same color wheel. Instead of doing a room, we're doing clothes, I said, but it's still relative. And so the next question he said, so why are you here? And I kind of like, my common sense kicked in. You know, he was trying to interrogate me for something so simple. So I said, okay, I have a copy of the classifieds with me and I highlighted it. And I put it gently on top of his table and I pointed to it and I said, excuse me, sir, but the ad said assistant to the pattern maker. It didn't even say with experience. And he started to <laughs> laugh. He, so he laughed and he goes, you are the ninth person who applied for this job. And I knew most of them or more of probably all of them didn't have any experience in fashion. But the thing is, every time I gave you a trick question, every time I would ask, why are you here? And all that, you know, some of them couldn't respond to me or some of them would just leave and excuse themselves. In your case, you're using your head. And that's what I need here. I'm, you know, I want somebody who can decide. I want somebody who can, who, who can make this place better. I want somebody who could own it, he says. I don't want a robot in my office, he said. So he said, I like you, when can you start? And it was practically a different experience in the sense that working for him, his name is Mr. Fami, working for him for almost six years uh, was like having a personal tutor because it was just me and him in, in, in the basement, in the pattern room. And it's like, I've seen, I'm probably sure you've seen the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, right? Yeah. That was my job. That was me. I was Andy. <laughs> uh, that was my job. I would get coffee. Was he I mean? would do... was, I'm sorry. Was the no, guy mean wasn't. to you? No, he was not mean to me. But, <laughs> you did but everything. He was not mean. Yeah, but, it, but the thing is that I would get him coffee. I would do errands for him. I would practically just be a... Uh, 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 he, it's assistant slash janitor, assistant slash personal assistant. So that's how it was. But the thing is, he, uh, he was a 60-year-old man when I met him. And he would always take two breaks during the day, not just for lunch. He would take two breaks. And sometimes he would, you know, he has a little TV by his desk and he would watch CNN or he would watch the news. And then he would tell me, David, you see the line on the pattern papers? Just start cutting it. So sometimes he would tell me to do things that he's supposed to do. And so it was, it was like having, being in a workshop that, that this person is actually being my personal tutor. So by the end of my tenure working for six years, I understood how to make patterns for 
a tailored coat to a ball gown to a draped uh, dress or or whatever you know and because of 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 what I learned from him he taught me the difference between French tailoring and the way the Italians do their suits and the way Saville Row in London does it you know he gave me the difference and then I found out three years after I was still working for him is that when he was in his teens this was after the war he was working in Paris to be assistant to the pattern maker for the house of Balenciaga in Paris. So he's one of those old school people that does things the way they used to do it in Paris during the time of the haute couture when there was no ready to wear. Most of the clothes people wear in Paris were personally custom made for them. Uh, that's, that, that's the haute couture. And so that was what I learned. And it was a an experience that I, I realized that I really love clothing because it is so, the, the, the change is so fast. Fashion is the only industry that changes every season. There's no other industry like fashion. What you see in the windows of Saks or Barney's or, 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 or the windows of Bergdorf or Neiman Marcus this summer, you will never see again next summer. It will never be created the same way, the same color, the same pattern, the same style. It will never exist again. That outfit that you saw or you bought this season, you will never be able to buy the same thing ever for the rest of your life. So, Sage advice, if you see it, buy it now. <laughs> yeah, and David, that, I gotta ask cool. you, for somebody that's going into fashion design, would you recommend that they become an employee first? Or if they're just like gung-ho and going, I got my designs, I got to do this, got to do it now. What would you okay. say to them? There, there is a difference between wanting to be a designer or wanting to make something creative. Because in the, design, in the fashion industry, there are two kinds of designers. Or I would say there are two kinds of lines, all right? There is the manufactured line, which is Banana Republic, Zara, H&M, you know, Old Navy. Those are manufactured lines because there's no designer representing them. There is no image behind those lines. Now, there is a designer line like Chanel, Gucci, Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, Diane von Furstenberg, because there is a real person behind the line, the designer himself or herself. So those are two different lines. So I always ask people or people who are interested to be in the fashion industry is that, who are you? Are you a manufactured line or are you a designer line? So who are you? Because the approach of these two things are different. You know, a designer line is approached in a very different way than a line that you're just doing for the masses like H&M or Zara or, you know, or, or Old Navy and all that, right? Uh, so there's a different level of responsibilities when it comes to that. And so the thing is, a designer line is, there is a story behind it. You know, we all know the story of Coco Chanel, of how she came to be. There's so many movies that were made about her life. And so there is a story behind the success of a designer line, of their background or their creativity or how they presented themselves or what made them unique. You don't find that kind of approach in Banana Republic. You don't kind of see that approach in Zara or H&M or Old Navy. There is no story behind those lines. They're just practically clothes that you buy off the rack or just buy off the table. 
There is no story, there's no inspiration, there is no direction, nothing. It's just clothes, period. That's the difference. And so I, I also so tell- fascinating, yeah. I mean, do you understand I, I, where I'm coming from? I feel the from? same way. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, clearly like you've been doing this for way longer than I have, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. It was like, in the beginning, it was really hard for me to just figure out like, am I, am I designing just for, like the looks just so that people are, you know, people have a, a bag, right? Cause that's, that's what I do, um, bag products. Or is it like a perspective? Like it's a story, it's a story. It's my story in my case, but like, it is a story. It's a perspective that you have to tell people and um, in order for, for you to just stand out or be different, like there's a different perspective. Louis Vuitton has a very different perspective than Chanel has. David, you have your own perspective too. And I would love to hear about that as well. Um, but I just, I love, you You know, like you're, you're coming to how you came to where you are today um, story, as well as like that and, distinction and the thing between, is, I, hey, there's a manufacturer line, designer line. I, I never had any formal training in fashion. I never went to Parsons or New York Institute of Technology or whatever. I've never went to a fashion school. Everything I learned and I went through was all like hands-on experience, you know? Yeah. And so uh, I think there's a difference in the sense that nobody guided me. There was no uh, mentor uh, a design mentor that guided me on where I am today. I did everything myself, you know. But one of the things is that one of the things that I thought of in the design industry, I am in America. I am in the United States of America. So my design should represent the people of the United States of America. And what is fashion in the United States of America? How do we see and view and appreciate fashion in America? Of course, we all say all the, New York is the fashion center of America, which is true because it's where all the fashion business, the American fashion business is all situated at. But I always believe that Hollywood is the window. Hollywood is the display window of New York. It is Hollywood where you see the most fabulous clothes on the, run, on the red carpet. It is in Hollywood that you see the designs of Versace being worn by J-Lo. It is, in, it, is, it, is, it is in Hollywood that you see all this, not just what the celebrities wear during the award season, but also in the movies. It is the costumes and the great clothes that you see worn in the movies, you know, from the day of Greta Garbo to Marilyn Monroe, all the way to the present. You know, those particular designs were not made by European designers. The designers like Edith Head and the American costume designers in Hollywood from the time it started, we're all American designers. We're all American made. They were made by American tailors, sewn by American seamstresses, embroidered by American embroiderers. Everything was completely American. So for me, as, a, as representing an American fashion sense, for me, Hollywood is the epitome of American style. And we see that to this day. And one of them who is my muse is Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn is actually the epitome of American style. To till today, even the, even the European designers would look at old Hollywood movies to get inspiration for their work. And so uh, that, that's how I, I, I started my design aesthetic and how can I Americanize my design aesthetic living in America? Because my market is the Americans, not the French, not the Italians, you know what I'm saying? So, I had to learn that coming from a whole different background, coming from an immigrant background, 
in a whole different culture. I infused and I kind of like learned how it is to be American, you know, in, in every sense of the way. And, and, and I think that part of it became a success in a sense that I would say 100% of my clients are Americans. I don't even cater to my own people. <laughs> uh, you know, David, you, you, when we were, again, I keep going back because the, restore, the reason I wanted this podcast and I wanted you on it and I wanted everybody here was because you're a fascinating storyteller and you had this inflamed, passionate speech that you gave me that was about your, uh, it wasn't really a confrontation, but how you convinced the local Las Vegas council that they were absurdly off base and, and like myopic for not understanding that there was an opportunity for a fashion industry in Las Vegas, which like for the rest of us is like, uh, duh, right? Like what's going on in Las Vegas? Costumes, casinos, right? Like why wouldn't you do that? But you you had a reason and you madam mayored it for me. And do you remember what you said to me about fashion across the ages? Oh yeah, well, because that time, you know, when I applied for the nonprofit organization of the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council, you know, I, uh, in, after we got our certificate from the IRS, our 501c3, you know, I asked my lawyers, what's the next step? And they said, well, if you want to be a recognized organization and a legitimate and, and uh, organization in the city of Las Vegas representing the fashion industry, you have to write your governor's office of economic and business development. You have to write the mayor's office. You have to write the arts council, people that would give importance to what you're doing. So that you know, it becomes an official organization, not just a mom and pop organization that just happened to be. You know, that's what they said. And so that's when I started. We actually, they helped me compose the letter. We started writing all these different offices, and it took about three to four months before I heard from anybody. And uh, I remember receiving a call one morning, and they said, "I'd like to speak to David." And I said, "Speaking." And she goes, "Hello, I am from the office of Mayor Carolyn Goodman." and we just want to invite you over to City Hall. She said, to discuss about a letter that you sent us a few months ago. I said, yes, yes, yes. And they said, okay, can you come Tuesday at 8 a.m.? And I said, okay, yes, I'll be there. And so, you know, City Hall in Las Vegas was just newly built. You know, they moved to a whole different location. The old City Hall uh, was no longer that. So when I came to that City Hall, it was the construction was still going on. But it was so funny because the security people didn't even have a kiosk or a booth. They were practically in like folding tables, sitting. And it's like I, I presented, I remember I came there about 7.45 because I didn't want to be late. And so I gave my ID and they punched it in the computer. And the guy was trying to give me instructions of where to go in the building. But since the construction was still going on, you can still mail the, mail the paint and construction workers are in and out. He said, you know what, I'll just take you there. And so we went up the second floor and he opened a big, huge door. And above it, there was a guy putting letters on, the, on, on that door and it said council chambers. And I said to the security guy, excuse me, sir, but my meeting is with the mayor's office. He says, no, you're meeting with the city council. Oh, I said, but it was the mayor's office who, who, who called me. The mayor heads the city council. That's what he said. And so it's like, it's like I felt, I thought it was just going to be like a, a sit down table conference, something like that. I didn't realize it felt like a Senate hearing, 
you know, I was going down these stairs. It was like a big auditorium, like the freaking United Nations. And you see all these names on that particular stage where everybody has their seat. And I have a center table in the middle of the entire room. And the guy said, see, this is your table. People are going to ask you questions. See this microphone? He says, there's a red light meaning they're not going to hear you. You have to press this button. It turns green. That's when they hear you. And then the same wow. thing with them. You, if you, you see scared? The, oh, I was. I, I was never, I, you know. I'm, I would I, be intimidated I, too. But I mean, I've never been in front of government people in that level. You know what I'm saying? The, I think the, the, the government people that I've ever been in front with is the DMV. You know? I mean, that was about it. And so um, I remember at exactly eight o'clock i would see all of them i don't know who these people are i don't know who they are because you know i haven't completely moved to vegas at that time and so i would see one by one they go to their post and their names right in front of it and i see congressman dean heller assemblywoman shelly berkeley mayor Cowley. they all greet each other and they were all sitting down exactly eight there was a moderator good morning ladies and gentlemen welcome to our uh, um, the agenda for today. We have five agendas that need to be discussed. But before anything else, I'd like to call everybody's attendance uh, to see if we have a quorum. So she started mentioning everybody's name. And so finally, okay, we have a quorum. The first agenda that we have five agendas to be discussed. The first agenda is about public works, blah, blah, blah. Second, you have a guest. His name is Mr. Tupas. He has a letter to all of you with regards to an organization. He's developing number three, number four, number five. So number one, they started doing talking about public works. In about 20 minutes, Mayor Goodman had a gavel and she said, okay, are we going to agree with this? You know, those who are agreeable say, I, 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 okay, agenda number one passed. Agenda number two, good morning, Mr. Tupac. And they were all quiet because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what to expect. You know, they were all reading my letter. And so I was, I was, it was cold in the room, but I was sweating because I've, I've never been confronted with something like this. And so finally a green light turned on and a woman asked me, assemblywoman asked me, she said, a fashion industry in the city of Las Vegas, she said, are you familiar that the city of Las Vegas is all about entertainment and gaming? And you know that the state of Nevada never manufactured anything in history. We are not a manufacturing state, she said. So if you have done your research, do you think starting a, a, an industry such as fashion, do you think we have the right infrastructure? Do you think we have the skilled workers? Do you think, have you done your research in order if, if there is something like this that comes into our city, he says, we are prepared. And she said, uh, and, and I said, yes, I am very much aware of that. And says, so you're willing to go through uh, doing this industry in a, in a city that never had it before. We have fashion retail, she said. All the great designers in the world are represented in Las Vegas. We have all their stores and all their boutiques, but as an industry, meaning manufacturing and making things, et cetera, et cetera. She said, you're willing to take the risk and fashion seems so important to you that you're doing it in a place that never had it before. That's what he said. She rather, and I respond. That's when I got, you know, challenged. When the moment she said, "Fashion is so important for to you," and so I said, "I think you have to rephrase your question, madam." 
And she looked at me and she goes, excuse me. And I said, I think you have to rephrase your question. And she said, explain. And so I said, fashion is not just important. It's a necessity. We all know that for mankind to live on planet Earth, we need three basic things. And that's food, clothing, and shelter. And obviously fashion comes under clothing. And I said, I'm sure all of you have gone to a department store or have shopped at a mall or any shopping places all over the country or even all other parts of the world. If you notice, 95% of what you see in every shopping mall in the world are all about fashion, cosmetic, lipstick, perfume, makeup, you know, sunglasses, visor cups, lingerie, underwear, women's wear, men's wear, leather wear, children's wear, slippers, shoes, sandals. They're all fashion, I said. How many computer stores do you see? You know, and so they were just listening to what I was saying. And I said to them, has any of you looked at the word fashion? You know, have you actually dissected what it actually means? Do you look at the word fashion the way you look at the word science, the way you look at the word music, the way you look at the word art? Is, do you look at the word fashion that way? Do you, do you define fashion in that level, in that level of subject, I said. To be honest with you, I said, fashion is very, very important. Why? Because it is the only visual factor that identifies every major period. Or in the ancient times, we knew they were Greeks, they were Romans, they were Egyptians. It is what they wore that we knew who they were, what they believed in, their traditions, their culture. It is what they wore that we identified them. And through the centuries, from the Middle Ages to the time of the Renaissance, to the time of the Victorian age, to the Edwardian age, to the time of Great Gatsby, all the way to Lady Gaga, I said, fashion is the only visual factor that identifies every major period in human history. And to yeah, top it totally off- you can totally see that. You can totally see that just in history museums, like- Yeah, um, you know, everything. and I said- and I said, you know, the look and- on your face was outrageously precious. It was like you listening to David say <laughs> that lit up like a kid on Christmas morning. It was like, <laughs> and I said, and I continued Being on, you know, <laughs> yeah. And I continued and I said, David, you should be a politician. Can you please be the lobbyist for like fashion design and manufacturing in the United no, I, States? Like, I, 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 I leave that. I leave that to the CFDA. They're the ones doing go. that. David, you and were going to so, finish. Yes, and I continued on, and I said, and to top it all, I said, fashion is the oldest institution there is. It is older than civilization. It is older than religion. It is older than countries and nations. It is older than governments and empires. Why? Because fashion was there at the moment of creation itself when Adam and Eve realized they were naked in paradise, fashion was born. <laughs> I was waiting for the inappropriate moment in this podcast to show it was, up. It was that. <laughs> so, David. Listen, <laughs> we've got just a couple minutes left and um, David, Lisa has the closing question for you. And then I have our round robin bad girls on business rapid fire um, uh, series that we do at the end. So Lisa, what's your last question? Yeah, so David, I love your passion. I love your grit. I love everything that you talked about. Where does all this 
where's where's your hard working ethic coming from? Because this is not just you know, it's not random, right? Like there's something behind it, you know? Um, is it your family? Um, give us a little bit of like what you're, I want whatever Kool-Aid you're drinking, basically. <laughs> well, you know, I come from a very big Catholic family and, uh, you know, I was, I was born different. So in a sense that I was different amongst all my brothers and sisters and even my cousins. So I used to be always singled out as a little boy and, 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 and kind of like, you know, being put in a place because I, I was different. I played with dolls instead of guns or little fire trucks. You know, I always play with the little girls. I, I, I was never like the little boy that I'm supposed to be learning how to play ball or baseball or all that stuff, you know? So I was different. And I would remember I was seven years old or something like that. I would go around family gatherings. I, I would hear my aunts and my uncles talking to my parents. And they would always criticize me and say, what's going to happen to David? Is this little sissy? What's going to happen to him when he grows up? So as a very young age, I felt discriminated, you know, just because I was Asian different. families do that so a lot. Felt, yeah. Yes. And so I told myself, you know what? One day I'm going to be so famous that you're going to kiss the ground I walk on. You know what I'm saying? And so <laughs> I think one of the reasons I think that triggered is that, you know, is, is that. But then again, you know, when I chose fashion as an industry, it is, it is not enough as a creative person. It is not enough that what we do is just done right. It has to be presented beautifully. Because I always see and meet a lot of young designers. And I always tell them, if you are a designer here, forget it. Because this can change. Mm -hmm. This can be influenced. This can be discouraged. But if you are a designer here, there's a difference. Your, your brain versus your heart. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that will last longer. That will last longer. And so there's so many things, you so, know, I guess we can have another episode sometime. We are having you back. Yeah, I mean, no. Yeah. Go ahead. Lisa, <laughs> no, Virginia Jay. pointed out it was, yeah, Virginia just messaged me and said it was, there's something else I should ask you, which is teeing up to this is grandpa. Your grandpa had a big influence on you as well in terms of, yeah, you know, not just the okay. fight of like, hey, yeah. I want to show up my family, but also something about your grandpa. So yes, my grandfather. Ever my my father my father's father. Ever since I was a small boy, he would always single me out, and he'd always tell me, David, you have to be the best of what you can be. So you know, growing up, I would always hear it whenever I see him. There's a family gathering, whatever, whatever. My grandfather would always say that to me. So growing up, I always think it's just cliche. It's like your parents telling you, eat your vegetables, be a good boy, don't get in trouble. So that's how I felt, you know, but that it became some sort of a habit that, you know, I just listened to one ear and out the other. But as I was growing older, and this was actually the time I was about to enter freshman college, it was a Christmas Eve dinner at his place. And us being Catholic, we joined the family for Christmas dinner and we stay through midnight because all of us go to church for midnight for midnight mass. But at that time, I said, I can't join you for the mass. I said, I have friends from out of town, so I'll just see you tomorrow. So I excused myself after dinner, and he brought me to the door. Same thing. As I was leaving, and I hugged him, my grandfather said, David, remember? I said, Grandpa, you've been telling me this all my life. I said, do you have any other message for me? I mean, is it just out of old habit? I said, and he started to laugh. And he said, okay. He says, fair enough. He says, now that I can see you're about to enter college, he says, I can see that you have a direction in life. I said, yes, I can see myself in the next 20 years. You know, I want to be in the arts. I want to do this. I want to do that. And he said, okay, that's great. 
because by the time you reach your goal and by the time your dreams come true, I might not be there anymore. But that's not the point, he says. The reason why I want you to be the best of what you can be is because there's only going to be one William Shakespeare that after 500 years, we are still studying his work. There's only going to be one Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart that, has, uh, that after 300 years, we're still playing his music. There's only going to be an Albert Einstein that has changed the course of science whose discovery mankind is benefiting from today. There's only going to be one Coco Chanel that has changed how women dress and made the little black dress a uniform for all women of style. Who are these people, he said. They're not kings, they're not queens, they're not presidents. They're ordinary people like you and me. But what they did is they became the best of what they can be and what they contributed mattered. You see, he said, ever since you were a little boy, I knew you were naturally creative because you would run around the house with a little pair of scissors and you would get magazines and newspapers and you would start cutting them and make them into little cars and make them into little houses. So as a little boy, I knew you were naturally creative. You have to feel honored that the universe gave you the gift of creativity because it is not available to everyone. You have to feel honored that the universe chose you instead of the next guy to give you this gift because the universe feels you deserve it. But this gift comes with a responsibility. When you're a creative person, he said, you're like a light. Where do you put a light? You don't put it under the table. You don't hide it in the closet. You put it above in the center of the room so that everything around it shines. That is the responsibility of a creative person because the universe is using you that through this talent, you can show the world and you can tell mankind that life is really worth living and that what you can contribute and give is make life more beautiful. Wow. That is so sweet. That was so beautiful. That's right. Yeah, that made me want to tear morning. up. Can you stand it? David Tupac. Bad girls you, don't cry. <laughs> you are, you are brilliant. And we definitely like, they, like there's 400 more questions in the chat that my hosts want to ask. And I'm like, we are out of time. Um, so we would love to have you back when you would love to speak with us again. But we do oh, have- I'm open. I know you tell you're such a you really should be on Broadway if you ask me like the David Tupaz like life story <laughs> monologue you I told them David I was like I listened to David Tupaz for three hours and I didn't say anything and they were like yeah we need him on the podcast there's nobody who can shut you up so, like, you're, just, you're just mesmerizing so listen we do have a couple of questions to ask before you go out they're just choices a b choice questions okay and okay, they have to do sure. they have to do with being not nice naughty and kinky all right sure so when it comes to marketing in business do you prefer domination or submission domination all right <clears throat> david when you're out networking are you an exhibitionist or a voyeur exhibitionist we guessed that all right <laughs> leadership as you lead your organization you lead your nonprofit as a leader gentleman dob or power sub power sub amen <laughs> yeah jenny and i are with you on that man all right when it comes to your team married or mistress mistress <laughs> Michelle's kind of guy. All right. <laughs> well, marriage is different because you're tied up. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're 
a power <laughs> sub and then it's in a better way. Oh, well, that's true. <laughs> it's in a better way. I understand. Shabari, yeah. man. Shabari is an art form. All right. Last question. Entrepreneurship in general, monogamy, one business, one thing, or polyamory? Poly. Poly. I yeah. think we had, I think we had you pegged. David Tupaz, I think the bad girls on business with our guest hostess, Lisa Hugh, designer from Lux Nix. Mom, I'm super excited that you got to meet her and um, you, I guarantee you, I will be putting her in front of you a whole lot more. So we thank Lisa Hugh for being on here and thank uh, you. hear it for, for having me. This is so this great. It's been so much fun. Jenny Bellinger. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much, David, for being here. And thank you, Lisa, for being our guest host today. Absolute uh, pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you so much. And so now moving forward, guys, if you want to know more about David and Lisa, make sure you check out our show notes uh, because we will have all of their contact information, including their websites and their social media. So you can go follow them to learn more about them and make sure you stay tuned because we have another badass episode on its way. Thank you for listening to the Bad Girls on Business podcast. Don't forget to check the show notes for any links mentioned in this episode and for additional contact information about the guest or our hostesses. If this show got you going, we'd love to hear about it when you subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Can't get enough of the direct sales dom, the referral diva, or your mistress in business? The Bad Girls have hidden their gift for you at badgirlsonbusiness.com. When you find the Easter egg, use the password BGOB to unlock your treasure chest of goodies. 